Welcome back to the podcast. This week in the studio, uh, I'm joined by Michael Anthony, Doctor Michael Anthony, and I'm going to talk. We're going to talk about a, a topic that I think is really important for men. And the, the name of this podcast episode is the Mistress, and we're going to be talking about work and, in particular, how work can become a mistress for men. And it can eventually uh, really wreak some havoc in, in marriages. And so uh, Michael's going to be sharing his story. But welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks, Thank you thanks Gabe. Time. Good to be here with you. Uh, we had you at a men's breakfast mm-hmm. recently, and you talked a little bit about this. And listening to yeah. you, you didn't elaborate much with your story, but uh, listening to you, I thought, man, we, we need to have him back on the podcast and <laughs> go deeper into this. So why don't you, yeah. first of all, just... Uh, Explain a little bit about you and your mm-hmm. background and your family. Right. Sure, yeah. Uh, married my wife, Michelle, who's the executive pastor of families here at, at New Life Church. I've got a 26-year-old daughter who's working on a Ph.D. in uh, strength and conditioning at Oklahoma State University and a son who's 20, almost 24, working on his master's in agriculture at Washington State University. Mm-hmm. So they get their intelligence from your wife, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the better side of the gene pool because she's got an earned doctorate as well. So uh, I guess at some point all four of us are going to have them. So. Now you're you're a mm-hmm. brilliant man. Well, thank so, you. Uh, talk about how work and how, how it became a mistress for you. Just ex- yeah. kind of maybe set it up. How, how mm-hmm. did this unfold in your life? Yeah, well, you know, for, for most of the men that I've encountered over the 40 some odd years I've actually been in ministry, most men have a mistress of one kind or another. They don't oftentimes identify it as that, but when you begin to peel back the layers of their life and you find out where their priorities are, that's where you're gonna begin to drill down and find out what it was. Yeah, for some it might be recreation, you know, golfing for for some, they they live for the weekend and go golfing. Uh, For others it might be uh, other outside interests or hobbies. For me it was my work. Uh, I was a seminary professor for uh, about 30 years. I taught at Talbot Seminary at Biola University. I continued to teach at different seminaries around the country. I was down in Dallas a couple of weeks ago. and also teach at Capital Seminary. I'm back at Talbot on a pretty regular basis. So for me, I really, really enjoyed the world of, of academia and higher education. Uh, when I left that, I became CEO and president of a, a fairly large ministry. At, at one point, we had 500 on the payroll. So I was in, in charge of, of a variety of responsibilities, one of which, of course, was fundraising. And when you're raising multiple millions of dollars a year on the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, you really have to prioritize your time in order to make that much money. I mean, that's a lot of money to raise in a year. And whether it's in higher education or it was when I was running a a large nonprofit, I threw myself into my career because I saw that as my calling. This is what God had created for Mm -hmm. me. And uh, whether it was in uh, this other nonprofit ministry or at the seminary, I wanted to give God my best. So I looked at it as sort of an offering to the Lord that if I give him my best, it's my way of of showing gratitude for all that God had done for me. I became a Christian back in the 60s. It's that radical Jesus people movement where the hippies became Jesus people. And I kind of got swept up in that. So for me, it was a pretty radical conversion. So when I was called into ministry, it was like, oh my gosh, I was so grateful just to become a Christian and be redeemed out of such a reprobate lifestyle that now to be called into ministry just seemed like, 
oh, wow, what an honor, what a privilege. So I ended up with a couple of master's degrees, two doctorates. I wanted to give God my best. There was, there was no giving God second best. Mm-hmm because I, I just reflected on all that he had given to me. And when I look back over my life journey, it wasn't payback. It was an offering of thankfulness and thanksgiving. And so when I you know, was in higher education, I made sure that I gave God everything. And I'm a high achiever by nature. Uh, and so I ended up giving everything I had you know, to my students, uh, maybe it was writing books or, or speaking on weekends, uh, whatever that particular position required of me. Mm-hmm. And in that particular career field, uh, the more you give, the more accolades you acquire. And you end up with plaques on the wall and certificates and titles and all this kind of stuff. And because I was pretty successful at what I did, I had walls filled with all this stuff. And it just fed something in the brokenness in me mm that I realized not till much, much later that I was motivated by something inside of me that had to prove that I could succeed, that I could, I'm not quite sure who I was proving it to, but I was obviously trying to prove to something or someone that I could do this, that I could be successful, that I could succeed. So the more you get, the it's like a vortex, it sucks you in, and before long, and it wasn't that long, a decade or more, I found myself so enamored in that lifestyle that it was like a moth to the flame. And the more I received, the more I wanted to give. The more I gave, the more I received. And it was just this uh, unsatiable draw Mm -hmm. uh, to higher education. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a bad thing because students were being blessed. Students would come and say, oh, my gosh, the, that lecture was so great. The class was so good. The, the mentoring you, you gave to me, the counsel, uh, it had kingdom benefit. And so whether I was speaking internationally or locally or writing or whatever it was I was doing, there was positive outcome. And that positive outcome just stroked an ego need in me that just maybe want to give more. Mm-hmm. Well, you've only got a certain number of hours in your day or your week, and so it has to come from somewhere. And so in my case, it was coming from my family, particularly my relationship with my wife. Uh, we had done a really good job of parenting our kids, daddy-daughter dates, father-son dates, things like that. I was very drawn to, to my kids. But, but there was a sacrifice in my relationship with my wife. And so after nearly 30 years of doing this, there finally came a breaking point where Michelle sat me down one day and she said, either you need to walk away from the intensity of how you're doing your job or this isn't going to work for me. This isn't what I signed up for. And, boy, talk about a wake-up call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was a wake-up call she should have given me 20 years earlier. It just shows her patience. But that was a sort of a a cross in the road that said, Michael, either you need to figure out why there is such a brokenness in you that is motivating you to to throw yourself so headlong into your career with the the sacrifice of your family, or you're going to lose that family. And in my case, because I'm in ministry, you lose your family, you lose your ministry as well. So you really need to set your family, particularly in my case, my relationship with my wife, as the highest priority. And don't worry about what follows after that. Do the best you can. 
but you need to reprioritize your life. And that was the wake-up call I needed to, to truly reprioritize my thinking. Yeah, that's, a, I'm sure, a very mm-hmm. sobering oh, moment. It was a scary moment. Your wife is looking you in the eyes, yeah. and she's talking about leaving. Yeah, she actually was. I, have, yeah. uh, I meet with a lot of guys. Uh, over the last year, I've probably met with at least a dozen guys who have been in my office, and they were at that point, mm-hmm. and, and they felt the crisis. Yeah. And they were desperate to make some changes. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some guys continue with that mm-hmm. and, and start a new, uh, start to chart a new course and stick with it and make some healthy changes. Yeah. Other guys will start out on that path but get sucked back into the vortex mm-hmm. of work once the crisis yeah. uh, begins to die down a little bit. But what was it like for you? So you, you had the moment, yeah. the sobering moment. What was the journey after yeah. that like for you? About four months later, I was, uh, we, would, we just had a board of directors meeting that day. And uh, I was doing sort of a debrief with the chairman of the board afterwards. And he was asking me, are, are you, basically, we, wanted, we want you to kind of re-up for another five years. We we're launching a $15 million campaign on the East Coast. And they really wanted me to sort of re-up. And I said, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not, I can't give you that many years. In fact, I'm not even sure what the future holds on my end, but I can't make that commitment. And he said, it's, this isn't working out for you, is it? I said, no, it really isn't. This is, not, this is not living up to my expectations. And he said, you know what? This isn't living up to ours either. Uh, I think it's time for us to separate. I said, are you firing me? And he goes, well, I wouldn't put it that way, but, uh, but we do want you out of your office in two weeks. <laughs> and uh, so at that point, God intervened for me at, at that point. And for about the next Almost two years, I struggled with trying to find my identity. Mm-hmm. I, I had started up a consulting firm. I was doing some consulting. So I had, I had a job, per se, but it wasn't the identity-stroking position that I'd had before. And so at that point, I went into literally a dark night of the soul experience that St. John of the Cross talks about, where you feel completely abandoned by God, isolated, uh, there is no, there is no two-way communication going on. My prayers were just falling flat on the floor. Uh, I had gone into depression. There was a really significant season of my life where I felt complete abandonment mm. from God, and it was during that time where I was absolutely stripped of any possible vestige of, of pride. And I mean, I was applying for jobs. That, this this isn't common knowledge. I go. I guess it would be at this point. But I even applied to Home Depot. Mm-hmm. I was going to mix paint mm-hmm. with two PhDs. I would have been happy to mix paint, and I couldn't even get that job. It was that low. Mm-hmm. I thought, how how what does it take to mix paint at Home Depot if I can't do it for with two doctors? But God was holding this away from me to get me to a point where I was so stripped of any vestige of pride and ego that when I finally hit the bottom of the bottom and I just said, you know, God, I don't care what I do as long as what I'm doing is for you, but my family and my wife is going to come first. And God had intervened. It it took two years. Some guys maybe could turn it around in a week or a month. For me, I was so deep into this, this vortex that it took two years for me to see daylight. But when I came out of that, I was a new man. I was a very, very different person. Uh, so much so that I even had a university. I was one week away from being offered their presidency, 
which most of my life I had aspired to that particular position. And I called the chairman of the board the week before and I, and I backed away. And my wife was shocked. It's like, you wanted this for decades. Why, what happened? You finally got this thing. And I said, my fear is that if I accepted that position and became that university's president, I would get sucked back into the mm-hmm. vortex. Yeah. And I'd know me enough not, yeah. to, not to touch that, that flame again. Yeah. And so after a number of months of, of some pretty serious radical behavioral change on my part, Michelle came to me one day. She goes, you're back. This is the man I married. This is the one that I wanted to stay married to. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what kind of a journey you've been on, but I'm, but I'm grateful because this is the guy that I want to be married to. And it, and it completely turned my marriage around. But it had to start with a bottoming out and utter humility of saying, I don't care what I do, even if it's mix and paint. Mm-hmm. I want to be married to you, and I want this to matter more than anything else. Yeah, yeah when a man's going through a crisis, it, that is so powerful to help them see what's really important. Yeah, it was and, a painful journey, and I would never volunteer anybody else to go through it. Mm-hmm. But I would never give it up for anything. Yeah, I wish I'd gone through it 20 years earlier. Well, yeah. speak to that, because mm-hmm. now when you look back on the journey, mm-hmm. can you recognize some of the dashboard lights that were blinking that maybe you were ignoring, these, these signals that were telling you, hey, something, something's wrong under the hood here? Yeah, yeah, that that yeah, there were there were some lights that were flashing. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I was not a workaholic, which was you would expect somebody to be workaholic, and usually with that is a Type A personality, and 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 with that comes a pattern of behavior. Uh, I didn't have that pattern, so I wasn't a workaholic. I was just very focused. So for me, I didn't have a lot of the traditional dashboard lights going off. Uh, in terms of health issues, um, uh, you know, ulcers, uh, heart palpitations, uh, inability to sleep, you know, those kinds of things that, that come with a high-stress personality. I, I'm not a high-stress kind of person. Uh, I, I do a lot of recreation. I have a lot of fun. I just laughter in my life. So the traditional lights that, that other people see flashing weren't flashing on my dashboard. The, the, the lights on my dashboard that were flashing I had ignored because they were hypnotizing me. So it wasn't warning me, it was drawing me in. Yeah, so the good. kinds of things that say, uh, wow, because you have, uh, you've written, I wrote a book every two years, which in, in academia is a, kind of a big deal. I got 13 books in 26 years. Every time a new book would come out, there was like a candy stick associated with that. And so rather than saying, wait a minute, don't you think you need to take a break for a few, for maybe a few years and focus now on giving back to your family because of the time it took to write that? Instead, the satisfaction of that, the, the ego that I got out of that, the flashing light that would have said, warning, warning, now you need to pay back the family for the time you've robbed them of. Instead, it just drew me into saying, what's the next one? What's the next one? What's the next one? And I would sometimes be writing three books at one time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those flashing lights I didn't recognize because I need somebody outside with different perspective to show me that's a warning light. That's not a light that, that, uh, that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. At, at some point, the good thing becomes a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And unless you can translate that into something bad, you miss it. Mm-hmm. 
I needed an older mentor in my life that could come along and say, hey, congratulations on the book. Now, you shouldn't be writing for at least two to three years so that you can focus on, in your case, in my case, it would have been my marriage. And I didn't have that older mentor. I like how you were willing uh, to begin to ask yourself, what's driving this? Yeah. What's driving uh, my motivation here? Because it's, sometimes that's hard for that's hard for me to do. I think that's hard for all men to do to take a real honest look at, at your heart, your soul, and say, "What am I being motivated by here?" And you were able to do that. Was that hard for you? Yeah, it was. It was really humbling, and and I had to trace it back. My mom, uh, and I'm not going back to blaming family members. My mom put me into kindergarten when I was four. Uh, I was the third of the three children. I think she was just tired of having three kids in the house, and she was ready to get me out. You know, So I'm four years old. It's close enough. Off you go to kindergarten. So I went through all of my elementary, junior, high, high school years, always being sort of the rent of the litter, last one to be picked for sports teams, all that kind of stuff, because I was, you know, could sort of be smaller than others. And it wasn't until I got into college and grad school, which was sort of that great evening effect, it didn't matter how old you were then, that I started to get public recognition through through my academics. And so uh, that for me, I think, was, was when I really began to get sort of sucked into it. I, I found my niche. Some people find it in sports, maybe some in business, some music. For me, it was in academics. And so it wasn't until so many years later that I looked back and said, what was causing the brokenness? And for me, I, I traced it back to an insecurity that I'd had as a child, that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't big enough, I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't socially competent enough, uh, cognitively developed enough, whatever it was, I wasn't enough of it until I got into high school or really college and grad school. Then I, then I became enough of something, and that just drew me into wanting to get more. Yeah, and once you're able to put your finger on what's really going on, then you can address it the proper way rather than yeah. trying to... Uh, get the validation in the, in the wrong ways. Yeah, and I wasn't trying to prove it to my dad or to my mom or to some friend. I was proving it to myself. That was what it was so worse. Was I was proving it to me, and I didn't even know that I was trying to prove it to me. Yeah. So once I could figure out what it was, and in my case it was easy because I just simply said, I don't care anymore. Enough is enough. I released myself from having to perform more. And what a place of freedom. That oh, yeah, was. total place of freedom. Uh, so I was free now to pursue other things, which in this case was my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, now, I, as you know, I do a lot of executive coaching uh, with CEOs and ministry leaders. And I will oftentimes ask, because usually by the time you're a CEO, executive pastor, senior pastor, you, you've or moved into one of the C-suite positions, you're highly accomplished You've got a lot of success under your belt. And because I, I know that, I, I'm peeling back the layers. And when I find someone that's really got an inordinate amount of success, one of the questions that usually hits them right between the eyes, I say, what insecurity in your life is motivating you to do this? And they look at me like, how do you know? I said, oh, if you only knew how I knew. But it's not about me right now. But I know because of my own experience that there's a reason why you are driven to perform at this level mm -hmm. because it's so inordinately above and beyond what others are asking you to do. So there's something driving that. What is it? Mm -hmm. And that's when you really get to the heart of the matter. And then what is it costing you? Yeah, it's a great mm -hmm. question. What would you say to the man who's listening 
and they might be saying, okay, I see your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just can't. I'm trying to keep my head above water. I'm trying yeah. to provide financially. Uh, they could have a lot of different reasons why they can't slow down. Yeah. What would you say to, to that man? Uh, they've lost their perspective. They can, they should, and they better. Because usually the outcome is you are going to drive yourself into an early grave, which is a pretty common outcome. The, the body can only sustain so much of that pedal of the metal lifestyle, and it's going to blow out at some point. One of my doctors was in developmental psychology, so I know that there are severe consequences to, to running a life in, in high stress, not the, not the least of which is a physical blowout. The other is relational blowout with, with family members, with your spouse, with your kids. Uh, so you end up with a divorce and you live in isolation. There's no satisfaction in yeah. that. So why are you doing this? And you say, why? Well, it, usually the, the honest answer is because I've developed a lifestyle that I'm not willing to compromise or to, to settle for less. I go, great, if, if, that's, if that's the lifestyle you've got, just understand that there's going to be a consequence for it down the line. You, you have to pay the price at some point, mm-hmm. and the price is probably going to be your health or your marriage. Mm-hmm. And so if you would have an honest conversation with your wife and say, sweetie, instead of owning a million-dollar home, would you be okay if we owned a $600,000 home and I didn't work on weekends and maybe our kids didn't go to private school and maybe we didn't go to Europe for vacation instead we just rented a motor home for a week? I bet 99 and nine-tenths of the wives would say, are you kidding? I would gladly give that up because I'm living a lonely life because you're gone so much and I'm raising the kids on my own and this isn't what I signed up for. So I think if you had an honest conversation with your spouse, Mm -hmm. because there's women out there living that drivenness as well, uh, I, I think if you could have some perspective and have an honest conversation with your spouse and you say, you know what, I really could give up. If I, if I was willing to. Yeah, I hope you hear that. Uh, I think that's good for every single man, including myself, is, is to consistently ask the wife, what do you think about my pace in this season? What do you think yeah. about my schedule? Do you think I'm gone too much? And give her, give her the ability to speak into that. Mm-hmm. Listen now before it's, like with your story, you started listening when it was almost too late. Yeah. And I think that's something that uh, is just pure gold here is ask, ask now, yeah. now before it's too yeah. late. What are, the, what are the, the flashing lights on the dashboard? I was just going into a season of sabbatical. You know, in, in academics, you get a semester off every seven years. In, in my year, in my case, I was able to get it every three and a half years. So you get four months off, full pay. Plus, if you want to take January off and then three months off in the summer, uh, you're looking at about eight months of, of off time, fully paid. And so I was just a week away from starting the sabbatical. I was going to write a, a book, and uh, and I was walking through my wife. I'm going to travel here. I'm going to speak in this country. I'm going to write this book. And, and I'm sort of laying out a, a list of all the things that I want to do on my sabbatical. And uh, she looked at me. She goes, you know, she goes, uh, I've got something that I want for you to do in your sabbatical as well. I thought, wow, that's that's kind of a surprise. Okay, well, what could that be? I'm thinking of some aspect of professional, you know, whatever. And she goes, I want you to stop being so critical. Me? Critical? 
And she goes, yeah, you are extremely critical. I said, well, that's my job. My job is to be critical. I, I'm chairing doctoral dissertations. I have to, be, you know, I have to crit- critique those. I, I grade papers every day. I'm, I'm watching students uh, preach their sermons, and I'm criticizing them. I'm a, I'm a professional criticizer. That's what I do for a living, and I'm good at it. She goes, yeah, but when you walk in the door and, and you rub your fingers down you know, the, the furniture and, and you sort of rub them, and even if you don't say anything, I'm watching you and I know what you're thinking. And what you're saying is, you're not good enough for me because there's dust on the furniture. And, and so we, we got into an argument. And I mean, it wasn't just a little argument, it was a major argument. And I finally got to the point where just to, to, to cool off, I went upstairs to my office, I closed the door, and I sat down. And I said, God, and I remember this conversation. I said, God, I can't believe this woman you gave me. She wants me to change in, in the character and the nature of who you've created me to be. I need to be this persona to do the job that you've given me to do. And I'm just... I'm, I'm verbally vomiting on God over my wife and, and this change of character that she has for me. And after I dumped out enough, I heard God speak in the calmness and the quietness. And, she, and he said, Michael, your wife is right. You're an idiot. Oh. You really are an idiot. You're a fool. And you are sacrificing your wife for your critical spirit. So I heard God just whack me between the eyes. And I said, God, what do you want me to do? And he said, listen to your wife. So I turned on the computer, and I wrote in like 42-point font the word criticism. And then I put a great big red circle around it with a, with a slash through it. And I printed out about 15 of these things, smaller ones, bigger ones. And uh, I put one right next to the, the alarm clock. So as soon as I turned the alarm clock off in the morning, I saw that reminder, don't be critical. I put one on uh, the bathroom, the mirrors, uh, when I opened it up to get my shaving stuff out. I put one in the garage door, which I looked at. It was the last thing that I saw just before I walked in the house to greet my wife on, on, on way back from work. I had them all. I had them in the office. I had one in my wallet. I had them in, on the dashboard of my car. I put them everywhere in the house as a reminder to me. And over the course of the next three or four months, this leopard began to change its spots. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in a sermon about four, five, six months later, and the pastor mentioned something about a critical spirit. And Michelle looked at me and she goes, Honey, I can't remember the last critical thing you've said to me. Thank you. And and I, I I nearly cried because it was like I really can change this this beast that that is in me. Mm-hmm. If only I had recognized at that point mm-hmm. the sensitivity that my wife had to speak into my own character development, and I wasn't so arrogant and so proud that I could say, "Honey, what else?" <laughs> I. I was happy just to get one thing checked off her list. I didn't have the courage to say what else. Had I said what else, I might have avoided that whole dark night of the soul experience because she could have prevented me from going down that road because there were other things on her list that eventually I had to get to. But she was one of those warning lights on the dashboard of my life. that's really good. Well, as I listen to what you're saying there, Michael, you, you, uh, you listen to your wife. Mm-hmm. You listen to God, and then you began to put some real practical things in place. Yeah. And I think that's huge uh, for all of us men to say, okay, first of all, let's start with God. God, what do you think about my pace and my schedule in this season of life? He'll, if we stay with the question, he'll answer. Yeah. 
and then uh, take it a step further. You know, then go to the wife. What do you think about my pace? Mm-hmm. And then what are some practical things based on the feedback that you're getting? What are some practical mm-hmm. things that a man could put in place to help him begin to? Yeah. Well, a third source would be to find another man mm-hmm. to come alongside. Uh, and and to allow them to speak into your life. You know, do you do you see imbalances in my own life? Uh, it could be someone in your church, in your men's group. It could be someone uh, as colleague, work colleague that you have a, a close friendship with. I eventually developed a relationship with a with a senior pastor, and because I was outside of his church, uh, we became very very close. And I could speak into his life, and he could speak into mine, and we mutually confessed areas of weakness to each other, and we affirmed and supported each other. Uh, we could be raw with one mm-hmm. another, and, and I needed other sources of input mm-hmm. to be able to speak into me. I, I gave the illustration earlier about a, a leopard doesn't change its spots, but, but you can dial down the intensity of those spots. And I think that was a starting point for me, was mm-hmm. listening to the Holy Spirit, allowing my wife to speak words of grace and peace uh, that that really God was speaking to me through her. Other men in my life, uh, obviously God's word, the counsel of others, uh, is sort of a cacophony of of input. And there may be different things for different men. But if there isn't something there, I fear for them. Because at some point, the laws of nature are going to take over and it's all going to come crashing down. So take it from me, somebody who's maybe a little bit farther down the road, uh, career-wise or life-wise from some of the men listening to this, it's not too late. It's not too late to, to get some input into your life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth it. Yeah, it's very good. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for yeah. sharing your story. And, and uh, for the men listening who would say, I want to hear more from Michael. Do you have a a blog or even one of the books of all the books that you've recommended is oh, there gosh. one that stands out that would be maybe a starting point yeah for that's crazy because all my books are in academics okay. you know they're, they're for seminary students these are for, for men and women who are going into ministry full-time so that's sort of been my unique mm-hmm. niche and and i don't really blog an awful lot and, and so mostly my input comes through my my coaching mm-hmm. so uh but if you're here on campus uh, around new life uh and you want to buy me a cup of coffee in, <laughs> in the cafe in between services, uh, I'm more than willing to sit yeah. down and share in, in any way I possibly can to help. Well, you have a lot to mm-hmm. offer. Thanks for Thanks. your time, and we'd love to have you back in the future for another podcast. Yeah, anytime at all. Thanks, brother. God bless you.